My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. When I look at the issues that the 17 Sustainable Development Goals seek to address, all of them seem to stem from one. Too many resources concentrated in too few hands. Think about it. Millionaires and billionaires don't exist without systems to continuously circulate resources. Remember my conversation in the season premiere with Mark and Yelsky? What if we forgave all debt every seven years? How many goods and services do you pay for right now that provide little or no value? Seven years is enough time to learn about wealth creation and reorient your life. Of course, one of the side effects would be the undeifying of the corporate business structure as a fast track to a golden parachute. So then, who fills that space? Why the entrepreneur? And my guest today did just that. Mitch Stein is the co-founder, CEO, and chief impact officer of Pond. Pond is a small tech startup with a big heart. They are relentlessly focused on alleviating two of the biggest stressors for nonprofit leaders. One, how to find the right tools, and two, how to pay for them. Mitch will share the origin story of his company and how it has improved his life along the way. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Mr. Mitch Stein. Mr. Mitch Stein, welcome to the M. Jason Graham Show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, would you start by telling us about your background and your area, your areas of expertise? Um, yeah, that's that's a, it. Could be a very long answer, but I'll try to keep it. <laughs> I'll keep relatively <laughs> short. So. Um, like you said, my name is Mitch Stein. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm the co-founder, CEO, and chief impact officer at Pond. Um, Pond is a reimagined marketplace for nonprofit tools and technologies. So we've created a space for nonprofits to be able to list um, their wish list or their needs or their questions around all things tools and tech. Um, and bring solutions to them that actually pay for their time to talk to them and pitch them on, on their product or solution. So the concept is all driven off of the ability for a provider of one of those tools or services, instead of spending marketing dollars on ads, um, they're able to put that money directly into the pocket of the audience that they're pitching to, to make them a better buyer and engendering more um, interest, excitement, trust from the nonprofit audience to, um, you know, really level up their impact with tech because pretty much every person in any nonprofit organization I've spoken with always has complaints or issues with the tools they're using. And it just doesn't have to be that way. There's so much progress we can make um, and so many more solutions that can be developed by having better market structure in this space uh, to get solutions where to the problems that they need to solve. So uh, I've been working on that for a little over a year. And prior to that was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs 
for seven years. Um, I worked across a number of different jobs there, but um, you know, always kind of client facing, working on big financing transactions or strategic um, mergers between companies. And really what I learned from that whole experience was all around relationship building, connections and market making and the power of markets, which we all understand the power of financial markets. And I think there's power in making markets more accessible, transparent, ubiquitous in all kinds of places, uh, including in, in the nonprofit sector, which I became more familiar with being a board member and a really avid fundraiser for the LGBT Center in New York. Um, I joined their event cycle for the cause, which is the Northeast AIDS ride from Boston to New York, um, because we had lost my uncle to AIDS. And so I joined in 2016 with my dad, um, started you know, picking up cycling, which I'd never done before, and also fundraising, which I'd never really done before, uh, and found a real passion in it. And when it wanted to go beyond raising money for the organization to um, improving how the tools they use and how they operate, and then realized the opportunity to do something similar at scale with, with a better platform. So that was really the, the inspiration to leave the golden handcuffs, if you will, <laughs> to, to, to take a leap, the golden handcuffs, the, um, to take a leap into entrepreneurship, which coincidentally uh, was five days before the pandemic uh, really besieged the United States. So it was an <laughs> unexpected twist in it all uh, to be developing the company here in a pandemic year. Wow. So what is your methodology or what is the methodology that you use when you're trying to create an opportunity? You mean for a nonprofit member or, or just, you just mean for just, me personally? Yeah. Just in general, where, where, hmm. where, where do you, where does that come from for you? Hmm. Great question. I, I think if I can take a step, uh, a little bit of a jog back in time, um, as a kid, I think I was raised like a, you know, maybe a lot of people in the US, this very like bootstrapped mentality. I think it comes from the fact my parents grew up relatively poor and my dad became a doctor and um, my mom was a nurse and really kind of well, in big air quotes, like made something of themselves through hard work. This is like the American, <laughs> American dream ethos. Uh, and I think, um, that really resonated with me as a kid. And I now can appreciate the privilege in it all where like nothing seemed out of reach, right? Like I had this confidence that I could, if I was willing to put in the work and work really hard, that anything could become an opportunity for me. Um, and so that was just like the way I sort of attacked anything I wanted to do. So if, if I wanted to create an opportunity for myself or others, um, you know, I just needed to put in the work. And I, it, it's interesting to reflect on that and, and how I grew up believing that because I think over the past several years, I've become more and more aware, especially through getting closer to the work at the LGBT Center in New York City, how many people that's not true for today with, with the systemic realities in this country and recognizing that as yet another opportunity for me to make the opportunity more accessible for more people. And so that really underlies how I look at opportunities now is not just 
I can create this opportunity by working hard, but also because of my privilege and, and where I sit in the world, I can create this opportunity to bring others along with me too. So then how, so then moving back to your company, uh, Pond, mm-hmm. how does that dovetail into how you not just created the company, but also structured it? Yeah. Um, you know, what the way it operates right now is not our, how we launched, which I feel like pretty much any startup always is filled with good pivot stories. Um, ours in some was, we started off with the concept that, um, you know, good markets create opportunity, right? When you think about using Expedia or uh, Zillow to find a home or like Carvana or Cargo's find a car, it's like that draws you into a market as a purchaser because it's so easy and it's so trustworthy and it's super transparent and comparable. And you all of a sudden you're gonna be spending thousands of dollars before you even realize it at the click of a button. Right. And you don't, you're not worried about it. Um, so I worked with companies like that. And so the original concept was just, if we organize um, all the information around the tools a nonprofit organization could be using for fundraising or running the organization and managing the people, and all the stuff that goes into um, running a small business, which is what most nonprofits are. Um, you know, 80% of the nonprofits in the country are fewer than a million dollars a year in, in revenue. Um, it, it, our original concept was to, to be able to um, make that more inviting, appealing. You're going to get people more engaged in the market, and it's going to create that opportunity for them to find the right solutions. Um, quickly realized we just weren't getting very much traction that actually that wasn't good enough because there were bigger barriers to them having that opportunity. Um, it wasn't just access to information. People didn't have time to even be re- researching that information. People didn't have funds to be able to spend on those tools. So why bother researching something new if I know I don't have the budget for it? Um, people didn't have a lot of expertise around tools or technology. So again, when you're not an expert, that becomes almost insurmountable to get yourself to spend a lot of time on it because um, it's really intimidating. And the biggest thing was just trust. Like everyone had had a bad experience um, using something in the past where someone sold and was a really good salesperson and they sold them on it and it didn't work like they said it would. And they just didn't want to go through all that again. Or, you know, I've heard this before and, they don't, and there's a lot of that restricting people having access to that opportunity. And when I think about those barriers to opportunity, it's interesting you bring this up because it's, it is very similar to my own personal realization about people's barriers to opportunity just based on their own privileges in society. Um, I think the nonprofit sector is kind of set back a couple rungs with those systemic limitations on um, how they access things like technology. And so that was what inspired us to flip the model around to say, actually, if we think about this market in the reverse direction, where providers are willing to pay to shop for potential customers, and the potential customer stands to benefit from being in control of that process, more streamlined, um, you know, access to new things without having to spend a bunch of time on it, getting money to spend on technology just by virtue of participating in the market, which they would have had to do anyway. Um, That was kind of the door number three that we think unlocks a lot of value. And to your point, 
create space for opportunity that didn't exist before by, by really focusing on the barriers uh, and how to lower them. It sounds like you get a lot of satisfaction. I mean, aside from just the, the, cause when we hear about entrepreneurship, we hear about the, you know, the ability to control your day. We hear about the ownership. We hear about the rush of creating something new and, um, you know, disrupting the market. But it sounds to me like you get more from it than just those things. What are some of the things that you get personally from having started Pond? Because it, it could not have been Pond. It could have been something else eventually. But what value has being an entrepreneur added to your life outside of what we typically see or what's typic- the typical narrative that we get? Ah, uh, that's a big one. <laughs> Uh, it's completely changed everything for me. I, I think the typical, um, career path, typical, you know, in heavy air quotes, um, whatever that means for your own, uh, <laughs> environment. Um, but for me, you know, once I was in school and I was a finance major, and then I was like going to the big bulge bracket bank and like on that kind of treadmill, um, it doesn't require a lot of deep introspection to learn about yourself to like continue progressing in that career you know you're a lot of what you need to do is laid out in front of you and it just means tons of hard work um and a lot of sacrifices but it um a lot of it is spelled out for you and so the adjustment to it's funny when you said people liked the being able to to decide how your day would be spent i did not enjoy that part of it because i was uh not only you know a banker that had all scheduled all day and had a million things to do all the time dictated by my clients or bosses or whoever. Um, when I was in college, I was an athlete. I um, was a heavyweight rower at the University of Pennsylvania. And my day was literally scheduled from 5.30 a.m. till 10 p.m. every day. Um, and so it was actually really challenging, especially when you're getting started as an entrepreneur, when like people are not banging down your door <laughs> to talk to you and you've got a lot of empty days, you're trying to figure out how to fill, um, it's actually really unsettling. And it was a really, really hard transition. Um, and I think that the process of creation is what a lot of people um, thrive on. And, and I actually don't know that that's, like, I think I'm a creative person, not artistically, I can't like draw or do anything musical, but I think sort of, um, creative think I'm a creative thinker and um, really like to re-examine problems and take a step back and look at them from a number of different directions, um, tie in a lot of different experiences or perspectives and references to, to re-examine something in a new light constantly. Um, but for me, the process of deciding what our identity was as a company, like, figuring out where the product market fit was, I kind of hated it. Like I would never go back to that stage. Um, I think a lot of founders that I've gotten to know, and because we're a marketplace of largely founder-led tech companies that are serving nonprofits, I've gotten to know tons of really interesting founders in the space. And I think there's most, pretty much every founder I've ever encountered or read about falls into one of two buckets. They either 
love that process I just talked about. Like they love the creation and the exploration and they want to be their own boss and they want to be a founder for the sake of being a founder, for the sake of being an entrepreneur. And so it could be some business to revolutionize the asphalt industry, or it could be like creating beyond Meat. you know, it's like, they don't necessarily feel super strongly about that one specific problem they want to solve. They love finding problems and figuring out ways to solve them and running their own business and all that kind of stuff. There's another category of entrepreneurs that I think I identify more with, which is they found a problem and they could not sleep until someone figured out a way to solve that problem. And so the like ideation stage around that actually isn't fun for that kind of person. They just want to get beyond that to start implementing and scaling and their solution to solve the problem they, they set out to solve. So while I enjoy a lot of the components of being a founder, being an entrepreneur, I'm, I guess like the cleanest way to put it is I'm way more excited for the next year <laughs> than, <laughs> than, than would be to go back and redo the last year, if that makes sense. It does. I think, I think in, I fall in that bucket as well, uh, being a storyteller and, and, figuring out ways to educate other storytellers on how to build a legacy. I, w- I, I had a system that solved that problem, but finding out where I was in the marketplace and how to find my customer and all of those things, it was just, I know exactly what you mean. Like I, I would almost be in tears at night because it's a sense of why can't people see the, the value of it? You know, um, it, it's it's so clear to me. Why can't why can't you guys see it? Uh, but but I think we you know, and I guess I could ask you about that. What was the moment that occurred where you saw the connection between that ideation stage and being able to implement your idea on a, a larger scale? What was that like? What was that realization like? Yeah, I mean, just like you said, I mean, the tears, there were a lot of tears. I mean, like we launched our original platform. The original company name was actually Empower Us, um, which was like fine, but there were, we spelled it with like just the letter M. And so it was one of those things where when you misspell something, people are going to be confused. And then it was like an an amalgamated word. So people didn't know how to pronounce it necessarily or or like what should be capitalized. There's just way too much like... uh, decision micro decision making to, for someone to remember or pronounce or say your name. Um, small tangent, really excited about the rebrand, something super simple like Pond. Um, but the original platform we launched was that kind of like Expedia experience, like the drop down menu of tons of different options for different categories. And um, when that wasn't working, there were several moments of like kind of gut punch of like, this just isn't working. And then a realization of that over a few weeks until the point we got like two and a half months in and I was just like, should I just give up? You know, I was in, I was actually physically depressed. Like I was unable to get out of bed in the mornings. There'd be weeks when I said, I didn't have anything on my calendar for days. Um, And trying to fill your calendar when you don't really have faith in what you're doing anymore and and keep pitching people is devastating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up having one of the, tech providers that was one of our original sponsors reach out to me um, and just be like, 
you know, hey, I'm checking in, haven't heard anything, because I was kind of avoiding these people, because like I wasn't working and I wasn't delivering them any leads. And, you know, I was embarrassed. Um, and he reached out and was, you know, just checking in and, you know, we haven't really seen anything from you guys. So just curious what's going on over there. And um, I went straight into the normal way I was trained as a banker, smooth talking, like, oh, you know, it's early days and that's some good signs. And there's like something coming up next week that I'm sure is going to spur some whatever, whatever. Um, I'm like nauseating myself uh, with the uh, my own BS. And um, I just stopped like mid-sentence and said, you know what, JD, it's not working. And I don't know what to do. And I'm sorry. And he was silent for a good 10 seconds, which felt like the longest period of time in my life. And he just goes, I knew this was going to be really hard. And I need you to stop focusing on what's not working because you're never going to be able to recognize what is working. And you're not an idiot. You know there's a problem to be solved. And like just started brainstorming with me. And that really kicked off several weeks of recharged ideation, kind of accepting that the first thing didn't work and we needed to move on and needed to put our energy into figuring out that next thing. And we just started trying things. We tried like, we started a contributor column basically where we got questions from um, nonprofits and then asked contributors to answer them. Like, so we were just like trying random, so started doing these video interviews, these like meet the founder videos, which we've now done like 20 of them. Um, and those have been super popular. So just trying lots of stuff to keep the train moving forward while we came up with our next move. And that conversation, showed me my own need to ask for help. And in a lot of ways where we shook out on Pond was allowing people to ask for help, <laughs> you know, and, and allow, just giving them the space to say what they need or what their problem is and like let people come to them with solutions. And it's like, especially in the nonprofit sector, people get so much help that <laughs> they didn't, necessarily ask for right so you know like a donor wants to make a donation to do xyz and you're like well why are you dictating how we run this organization right as the experts on the ground closest to the cause and yet you, know, you want to own how your donation is utilized really is that a donation then or does that like serving something for you right so there's so much help that is you're not necessarily asking for so it's like creating a space to ask for the help you actually need and, and trust and believe in people to express that for themselves because there's a lot of patronizing in the nonprofit sector from funders and people being, oh, well, you couldn't possibly know how to describe a problem of yours that might be solved by a regular old tech solution that exists and serves business needs because guess what? You're a business with business objectives as a nonprofit. Um, so it was a lot of that that was um, what I would describe as the more like ideation, exploration, kind of light bulb moments as we went. And we just found a prototyping tool to create a really simple prototype. Um, I went back to a lot of the nonprofits I'd talked to originally, uh, and this was in January. And I just was like, hey, this is how it works. This is the idea. 
I'll fill this thing out for you while we're on the phone together and create a listing for you. Um, and that's it. And so I got 30 people signed up in like three weeks. So then I was able to turn around to the providers and like with my fingers crossed being like, I hope they actually were willing to pay for this thing. I said, <laughs> I've got all these people signed up for. Um, and 20 tech providers in three days signed up for the platform. So that was the moment where we were like, oh, this is on both sides. We've got the like validation. We made a really simple test. It was, it cost nothing. We made it on this free, like no code platform that's it's called bubble.io, which I would recommend for anyone wanting to toy around with a, a tech startup <laughs> and doing a little um, elementary version of whatever you want to do. And we were then just off to the races. I was reinvigorated, um, started adding folks to the team, built out the custom platform, started working on the rebrand, and really went all in, um, feeling like we'd, we'd hit a stride that, that we could really run with. Wow. That's wonderful. So tying everything together this season, we are talking about developing an economy of well-being. Mm. So what does well-being mean to you? Yeah, I, I really love the word. Um, and we talk a lot about self-care. Um, there's something about well-being that's almost bigger than self-care it's it it is expressing the goal of self-care in a way like what is like self-care is to get you to a better well-being so um i love that and i think um a lot of what the work we do in the nonprofit space is communicating the value of someone's time and making sure that they understand the value of their own time um and I think valuing your own time allows you to invest it in the ways that contribute to your well-being, um, and uh, you know that you're. And that doesn't just mean working all the time, right? So, valuing, yeah. understanding that for the time you're spending working to be most valuable, you've got to have the time spent recharging and, and filling your cup in other ways. Um, you know, ideally your work is kind of filling your cup while you're pouring as well, but inevitably that you run a bit of a deficit because, you know, we are physical beings that need rest and restoration. So I, I really like that more holistic view of, of well-being, not to say that you shouldn't be working or working hard, just make sure you're working on something that is, is really meaningful and fulfilling to you. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean like you have to go run and, and work for a nonprofit. Like there's plenty of ways to get that sense of impact in your work. Um, but it is worth spending a lot of time uh, making sure that is lining up. Like the value, I, I think about time as a concept constantly because a big inspiration, honestly, for what we started doing with Pond was I also watched the movie. Um, the Social Dilemma, which is the uh, Netflix documentary really going behind the scenes of big social media companies and how they are kind of manipulating our time, but also that every one of us, no matter who you are, right? You could be um, the CEO of a big company or you could be some, you know, a, a random 
um, person in Southeast Asia, like it doesn't matter. You have value that a social media platform is monetizing, right? Like your time and attention, your clicks, your eyeballs on ads are making those companies money. And, and just recognizing that it's actually really profound that they revealed to all of us the value inherent in just existing and being a sentient human that has time and attention to give to things. That's really powerful. And it just makes you wonder why hasn't anybody developed a similar system that, monet, that, that pays people for their time and attention in a similar fashion? Like if you, that's, it's the same concept. And that's really what we're starting to get at with Pond is like your time and attention has value. People are paying to put ads in front of you because of what they think you're likely to buy or what they want to convince you to buy. So why shouldn't we have a system that puts you in control of the things that you engage with to potentially purchase um, and let you benefit from that value? Like maybe we don't need that sort of extractive layer that is advertising. Um, you know, it's people applaud the benefits of a Google or a Facebook. Um, not to say that there haven't been great things, but what if there was a version of Google or Facebook that didn't have ads and paid you to use it? What, like, what could be developed and innovated in a world where ads weren't driving their decision-making? Like it, it could be so much more powerful. Wow. Yeah. You, you said, you said a mouthful, um, especially <laughs> about that ads portion, a world where companies aren't driven by ad, um, the need to, to sell to us, what if they just what what if they just bought our time, and we made the choice as to what we wanted wanted to buy? That bought our time in order to look at their product. That's really powerful. Um, well, I mean that kind of dovetails into my next question, which is, what are some of what are maybe one or two other opportunities that you see that are on the horizon for the intersection between finance and nonprofits? Yeah, I think um, at least what we see on the horizon for Pond, I mean, to take a step back, when I was at Goldman, actually worked on an internal project where I pitched for the bank to create a nonprofit-specific banking platform. So it was like, this is a huge sector. There is so much financial transaction movement um, in and out of the nonprofit sector that involves such a large part of the economy. Um, and I mean, there's a large part of the population, right? Like over half of Americans are giving to nonprofits every year. Um, and it accounts for two and a half percent of GDP. Um, there is no bank that owns that space from a brand perspective. There's, you know, like Silicon Valley Bank might be the first thing you think of for startup banks. Um, there is no equivalent for nonprofits. It's super fragmented. It's very like local community banks or just the big national banks. Um, no one's created a platform or a product that really caters to the unique needs of a nonprofit. So I think that's an amazing opportunity. But the reason, I mean, the reason we didn't end up getting the funding internally to work on that project was that the go-to-market, the marketplace wasn't there to reach those customers in an efficient way for a big company to invest um, in developing a special product. And so I think the opportunities 
to serve the nonprofit sector with better products and services is like endless once you set up a well-functioning marketplace like Pond, um, where, where now you have so much more transparency in both directions, both meaning like transparency into what's on offer in the market, like being able to compare products, prices, that always benefits the purchaser, the consumer, which is the nonprofit. Um, we're putting money into all these organizations' pockets to spend on stuff that they didn't have to go fundraise for, they didn't have to go write a grant proposal for, or 10, which is usually how many it takes to get an actual grant. Um, so it, it's, I think this could be an amazing catalyst to the market to encourage product development in the broader space, whether that's in finance or tech or a hundred other needs of the nonprofit sector. Um, I think a lot about how much, when we talk about the mystery of product market fit, right? That, that is so challenging for an entrepreneur that's not doing it because they love that part. <laughs> right. Um, just imagine a world where you have a potential customer base. You know, we've got 135 nonprofits on Pond today when, when we're being filmed. Hopefully it's a much bigger number by the time, <laughs> the time the episode airs. But imagine a world where there's like 10,000 nonprofits using Pond, 100,000 nonprofits. There's 2 million in the country, let alone globally. Um, but having that sort of consolidated view on the needs that people have, not in a, and it's not a predatory way. It's just like you own the expression of what your pro biggest problem is, your biggest need is. What do you want to solve? It doesn't matter if it's super niche to like this one local soup kitchen in Atlanta that's dealing with this, you know, guess what? It's probably something similar that a similar size or type organization in the Northeast and Southwest and wherever is dealing with. And if you have a unifying platform to say, hey, a hundred organizations have this same problem. And if I'm a developer, um, either could be small, it could be a big company, it doesn't matter. There's actually a lot of equity and access for developers and, and founders in the space to say, hey, that's a problem I think I can help tackle. And I know exactly how many customers there are with that problem. I know exactly how to reach them through Pond. And I know exactly how much it's gonna cost me to reach them because it's a uniform cost of access, which has never existed, right? It's always bidding for AdWords on Google or all these other lead right. generators. So they favor the bigger company, which then perpetuates existing you know, wealth and capital imbalances in society. No, it's completely accessible to anyone who wants to solve problems. And I think that opportunity set is pretty limitless and really exciting. So the question that we ask every episode of our guests uh, is, uh, what three books would you recommend that everyone read? Oh man, I, I, you had given me a little bit of a preview on this, so I've been thinking about it. <laughs> um, and I was, I was debating like everyone should read or what are my favorite books, which is really like our very different um, lists, I suppose. Uh, and also different for different people. So I think two books that I've read in the last year that I would like call attention to for your audience and you know, specifically to any white folks listening to this podcast, you need to read Stamp from the beginning and you need to read The New Jim Crow. I feel like that should be required reading for anyone who doesn't have lived experience to understand what 
the implications of systemic racism are. Um, and I'd recommend them in that order too. I mean, Ibram Kendi uh, in Stand From the Beginning walks through from the beginning of our own conscience of time in America um, from our perspective, which obviously is, is, is a white perspective, but it helps reframe it in a way um, such a powerful, like just super diligent approach to walk through every piece that you might remember of US history and help you recast it in a different light that wasn't written by people just like you. Um, it's so well done, it's so powerful, and I just think everyone should read it um, as a, <laughs> the booster shot to whatever US history you got as a kid, <laughs> which was extremely biased. Um, similarly with the new Jim Crow, I, I think crime is like a hot button topic for people uh, in the US in particular, we are just in this kind of downward spiral where we have bad crime rates and gun crime rates and all these issues. And people think applying more of what probably is causing a lot of those crime systems, like increased police presence, all these things. Um, we need to take a step back and examine why we're in the problem we're in. And I just think there's so much like headline and buzzword throwing around on this topic that everyone should spend the time to really deeply study why we are where we are when it relates to crime and what has happened in the last 50 years behind the scenes, especially for like, I'm behind the scenes in air quotes, it's been very present and clear for a lot of people of color, but for a, a lot of white folks, it hasn't been something they're experiencing day to day. And so they can't appreciate what a drastic change has happened in terms of the prison industrial complex and the components of race that play into that. So um, would put a huge, there, there are so many books around anti-racism and systemic racism that everyone should be reading. And, and I've got a long list, but those are, are very high. Um, the third that I'd throw out there um, as a startup founder that I've found really powerful um, is a book that is sitting right here next to me on my desk because I love to look at it all day is called Finite and Infinite Games. Um, and I just find it really applicable to pretty much any problem faced by anyone. Um, and the whole concept is, you know, a finite game when it comes to business is like, I'm gonna create the best competitor to Ritz Cracker ever. And we're gonna steal market share from Ritz Cracker and have the best cracker ever, okay? So you are competing in a finite game for finite market share in the cracker industry. Um, infinite games are thinking, how could I open up a brand new market of food product that then benefits everyone? And it usually is driven by a new kind of cooperation they're often marketplace businesses that bring people to the table together um, that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And if they were purely pursuing their own self-interest and self-preservation would continue playing in a finite game as opposed to participating in a larger infinite game that they kind of need to be removed from their own reality to participate in. It is so powerful. Uh, and, I, and I think it, it really helps reframe forward vision and, and goal setting 
uh, is it's not just a business concept. I mean, societal problems, community problems, competition is a poor way to solve problems. Despite what we've been trained as a society, you know, that is obsessed with violence, particularly when it comes to athletics, right? And like winner take all mentality. And that's very much like our pro-capitalism, imperialist, all these things that are just baked in our DNA as a country. Um, and yet we know, we know anything amazing that has happened in the past was an aberration from competition. It was always cooperation that produced incredible things. And so I really believe we can all strive for cooperation in every part of our lives in society. Um, and we have a long way to go, but that's how we're going to tackle some of the biggest problems that we face today. Well, Mitch, let everybody know where they can find information about you and more information about Pond. Yeah, of course. So our website is joinpond.com. Um, so great place to look. I'm also very loud and active on LinkedIn. I guess as loud as one can be on a written platform. Um, but yeah, Mitch Stein on LinkedIn and, and uh, obviously at Pond. So that should be pretty easy to find. Um, and also feel free to just shoot me an email if you want to know more. My email is mitch at joinpond.com. And, um, you know, whether you're working in tech or working at a nonprofit or just love brainstorming on how to have more impact in the world, uh, I'm here for it. So reach out. Mitch Stein, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is super fun. Full appreciation of Mr. Mitch Stein for spending time with us today. Of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, I feel this conversation speaks most directly to decent work and economic growth. Imagine a society where the entrepreneur is not only free to, but supported by infrastructure in finding ways, new ways to create new markets so that we are constantly moving forward. Think about Facebook. For those of us that joined in 2009, do we honestly remember what that version looked like? Facebook has only survived by theft, acquisition, and price fixing, all of which has come out in the last four years. It is reasonable to assume that if Facebook had not been allowed to purchase companies like WhatsApp, Instagram, and Oculus, they would not have amassed so much market share in the media and advertising space. Honestly, we are due for a Ma Bell-style antitrust action. It's time we rededicated our great society to advancement. And I mean actual advancement, not Apple products advancement, but a grandbaby's grandbabies. For more information on Mr. Mitch Stein, go to www.mjgstorycreation.com and click the MJG Show button. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. And don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, be well. Feel love. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artist. Javier Acuna is the episode engineer. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.